we're glad that you're here. If you're online, we're glad that you're there as well. And uh, we've been in this series for a few weeks. It's called Heretic. And it, it really is about our shifting beliefs and the church's tendency to brand somebody who believes a little bit differently a heretic. And so uh, we're not using this in any sort of negative sense at all because we contend that I'm a heretic and you are too. You just don't know how yet. Or maybe in the last two or three weeks you figured it out and you're wearing it proudly. And so someone suggested that we get some t-shirts that say I'm a heretic for the series. And so uh, if we get enough interest in that, maybe we'll get some and you can wear them around. It will be a conversation starter at least. So we, we began this series with a question. And this was the question that we, that we started with. What is something that has shifted in your beliefs over the years? And we talked about in, in this setting, and if you were online, you, you missed this just a little bit. Um, there are a few things we're doing to make online a little more special. We show them a few things that you guys don't get to see. If you've watched the last week or two, maybe you saw that. But if you're online, you missed the cookies we talked about and the discussion in the room that we had. Uh, we tried to repeat it for you mostly, but we asked this question and you gave us some answers. And the things that have shifted in your beliefs over the years, I could have listed a few things, but I've learned since through some conversations with some of you about some of those things and what they are and what that has meant to you. And this is going to be true for you. Your faith is going to shift in some way or another. And some of those things are large or small and people you know, your, your kids, their faith is going to shift. And For some of us, that shift either in our life or the life of somebody else can be uh, anything from uh, freedom giving to catastrophic. It can be incredible, it can be exhilarating, and it can be incredibly difficult and painful and anywhere in between. And so we've been talking around some of those shifts, but let's just name a few today. Um, I'll do it on the screen here and we'll talk about them broadly. And some of the things that we'll talk about, they, they may give you a bit of angst, but just when the Southwest flight attendant got ready to, you know, finish their little safety speech up and get the flight going, they said very plainly, now sit back and relax and enjoy the flight, or you can sit up straight and be tense the whole time. It's entirely up to you. <laughs> and so it's true. As we go through this series Some of this stuff can create some angst in us because of our history, our background, or the people in our lives, or maybe the own shift that you're going through right now, but whatever it is. Here's some of the things that the church has shifted, not our church, Big C Church, the broad church has shifted with over the years, some incredible theological shifts that have happened, and you can see the list. We could add to the list, but I've picked some of the biggies, and our church is a part of the Evangelical Covenant Church, and The ECC has made some stands on some of these things, and the ECC has made it clear that there are some of these things on this list that there is not really a church opinion about. There have been some things in your faith that you've shifted on, and we mentioned those broadly in the room, like I said the first week. For some of you, it was the timeline of creation. I've heard this before. That, you know, some of you thought when you were growing up, you were taught the Bible means what it says, and it says what it means, and it's pretty clear that when God created the world, he did it in seven days. And then something happened. It was your understanding of, oh, uh, microevolution, or an understanding of how we date things, or any number of issues, and you decided, you know, I'm not sure Genesis means that the world was created in what we would call a seven-hour or seven-day, 24-hour week. So I think maybe that, and so some of you have shifted. Let me just ask, just for fun, 
This will be, I, won't, I won't ask this on all of them. This one feels pretty safe, though. Um, <laughs> how, many of you, how many of you used to believe in like a seven-day literal thing, and now you believe in a, like an epic thing, like a, a long time? Let me see your hands. Okay. So see right there, some people that need the shirt, right? <laughs> some of you were taught that the structure of marriage is just exactly the way the Bible says it ought to be, right? Bitterness and no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> the man's in charge and the, and the woman says, you know, yes, sir. And some of you decided that that's how it's been taught to me, but I'm not sure that's how it works. In fact, maybe you were part of a family that belonged to a church that taught that's how the structure of marriage should be. And your family said that they believe that, but when you watch decisions go down and happen and occur, you realized, I hear what you're saying, but that's not how it works at home. It's very different than that. Does that ring a touch the nerve? Okay. And so maybe you changed your mind on what you believe is the biblical understanding of the structure of marriage. And some of you haven't done that. Some of you believe this or some of you believe that. The role of women in the church, when we had uh, Debbie Vare up a few weeks ago and we complimented her and encouraged her and, and celebrated her earning a license in the covenant church, I'm sure there were some that thought, wait a second, what kind of church is this? And every now and then we've had somebody who has visited our church and then they come to an understanding of what we believe the ECC embraces regarding the role of women in the church. And they say, you know what? I was with you. I like your people. I like your deal. I like your thing up until that point. And for them, that's become a deal breaker. If you paid any attention to the large denominational church splits over the last 10 years, then you know that most all denominations are struggling with LGBTQ plus theology and what to do about that issue and it's even been an issue within the Evangelical Covenant Church, one that has created lots of friction and difficulty and division. Some of you are a part of a background in history that involves reform theology versus free will. And you might not even know what that is, but this is uh, a big deal in the church world. And, and so if you understand the beliefs or the Theology around Calvinism or predestination, that's all Reformed theology. Free will is the other end of the, the spectrum there. If you ever struggled with answering the question, why did Jesus have to die on the cross, what you were talking about at that moment in time was your theology of atonement. And churches have split and divided throughout history because of that issue. Biblical literalism, well, we're back to the timeline of creation, seven days or not, or do we have to do it exactly the way the Bible says because it feels like Paul draws a line there, but is that to be taken literally? Various behaviors, and we'll put that large umbrella with all kinds of things, maybe how you feel about alcohol or how you feel about gambling or how you feel, you fill in the blank, all kinds of things, and then political shifts. Of course, much of what we believe about who God is and how he operates in the world is tied to how we think things should operate in a general way. And your political leanings are probably affected by all of these things. And whether you feel like we should be engaging in public programs to feed the poor or people ought to make their own way, your theology about politics affects each of these issues. Now, for you, some of these are deal breakers. If you say, well, if you lean one way, I'm out. 
if you don't lean my way, which is this, which is probably the right way. And some of these things are issues that you haven't pondered and now it's going to create an issue for you because you're going to be thinking about it. And you're going to weigh it. And it's going to matter to you. But every one of these issues is an important issue to one or more faith communities in our area, in our community. For some people, if you go to a specific church, they believe very specific things about some of these issues and they want you to know that if you're a part of their group or a part of their team or a part of their church family, that if you are here, you need to know this is what we think. I gave you one with the role of women in church. Some of these issues are things that help you grasp an understanding of Scripture at large. And with all of these issues, our shifts in regards to them, they happen in different ways at different times for different reasons. I I know you're thinking with me and you can think about some of your shifts that you've made, maybe not even something from this list. Sometimes we make a shift because of something we learn. Somebody teaches us an idea about scripture and we say, you know, I didn't know that. I didn't know it said that. I had no idea. And so you begin to move and shift. Sometimes it happens because in the world of your faith and your theology, you come upon a piece and it just doesn't fit anymore. And you think, I don't know what to do with this piece. It feels like, you know, this is just not going to fit into the part that it fit to before and it's got to go. And so you begin to make a shift. Sometimes it happens because you meet somebody that is on the other end of the issue. They think very differently than you do. And if you grew up in a church, then we have this tendency to say, well, here's what we believe. And anybody that believes separate, anybody that believes something very different, well, we villainize them and paint them as what? Heretics. And then you meet somebody. And you find out, oh, I mean, not only are they kind and thoughtful, they're smart, they know the Bible better than me. And so we have a discussion. And that discussion leads us to a place of, a new understanding of who God is and what he's doing and how I think he's operating in the world. These shifts happen in a variety of ways. But our hope, a lot of details, right? A lot of different things to ponder and think about. This is our hope. That when one of these shifts happen for you, that it's because you have thoughtfully engaged with people. God is always in community, always. God is never about isolation or being alone or outside of relationship. He's always represented in the the context, the subtext, the the story from the very beginning represented in in the word. And that you have moved toward a place where you feel like, well, I don't know what to do with it. I've changed what I think about this but I do feel like that I understand or represent or am more in love with or in obedience to God. I want to know him better. Our hope is that every shift you've made is because you're moving towards God. You're seeking him. 
Not because you have an agenda or you want to prove somebody wrong or you want to be sure that things line up according to the way you think they ought to line up, but that you're seeking God. In fact, Jesus' promise was this, if you seek me, you will what? Which means that there's got to be this journey that involves, you know, where is he? Where is he? I need to find him. I want to know him. I want to understand him. I want to represent him. I want to let other people see God through me and the way I love and the way I think. This is what we want. And so our hope is that it is about us finding God and understanding him more thoroughly, more deeply. Because if, if we admit anything together today, it would be this, that all of this, just the details of it, it's about us knowing him better than we know him today. We want to know him better tomorrow. I love this quote that I stumbled on in a book I've been reading. Uh, It's written by a man named Gregory Boyle. And Gregory Boyle started a ministry in L.A. back in the 80s. And he works with, uh, it's called Homeboys Industry. He works with people who are homeless and and gang-related. And he he does incredible work. He's done it for decades. And people who invest in in a community like that for the sake of Jesus and do so for a long time have my attention because... The, uh, the work that they do, it just it requires their whole life. And so in, in understanding theology, here's what he says. Here's what Gregory Boyce says. Nothing is more consequential in our lives than the notion of God we hold. That's a powerful idea. But he wants to clarify it. So he says this. He's not, not God, he says. It's the notion of God that we have. In other words... There's an idea of God that you have that is maybe related to any number of these things, that, that God is a certain way or, or operates this way or that way. And Boyle would say that nothing in your life, your, your priorities, your, your decisions, your, you name it, nothing in your life is more important than the notion of God that we hold. And this idea is hard for us because we like to think that, well, I mean, I I guess I have a notion of God, but mostly I just think I know God. In other words, my perceptions aren't just perceptions, they're true, is what we think. They just are. But you know, as we've established over the last few weeks, that your beliefs or theology, some of the things that you hold dearly, have shifted at least a little bit over time because you're growing, because you're seeking God. And if those shifts can happen, then your notion of God can be, well, it's, it's permeable. It can change. Hopefully toward the better and toward good places and toward a more accurate idea of who God is, one represented through history, people that love him in scripture. But if that notion can change, then we need to know that that notion is consequential in so many ways. And he says, here's what he says after he says that. He says this, this is what steers the ship. This is how important it is. He wants us to know. Our idea of God will always what? It determines how we live. And it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. It just does. You, you may say, well, I don't, even the atheist or agnostic, this is true because you believe something about the absence of God or the fact that you don't even know who God is. Regardless, it always steers the ship. Whatever you think of God, it determines what you value very precisely. Whatever you think of God, 
it determines your behavior and what you expect of other people. I mean, if you believe God is a legalist, then you'll be a legalist. That's what you think matters most. If you believe God is full of grace and mercy and love, then this is how you will treat other people. Whatever expectations you believe, whatever you believe about it that God has handed down to you and placed on you for your life, you will in turn hold people to that exact same standard. Even though we fall short and other people fall short, we still will hold that expectation of others. I believe this is true when it comes to theology. You might think, well, I'm not a theologian. I would say everybody's a theologian because we all have an understanding of who God is and how he works. Maybe we can't articulate it. Maybe we don't use big words that they came up with in some dark corner of a seminary. But we do believe this, that nothing is more consequential in our lives than the notion of God that we hold. As far as your life goes, what steers the ship. And our idea of God will always be what calls, what, what, uh, calls the shots. So the other question that we asked to get us into this series was this. We asked it week two. What is a belief about faith that you hold with certainty? And we, we talked about that. We mentioned several. And this is good for you to ponder. In fact, the other question that we asked, this one, it's good for you to come back to. And, you know, it's a great dinner conversation. It's fascinating to hear other people talk about it. And it helps you clarify your own thoughts. But we all have a list of things that we believe with certainty. And we can make that list. For some of us in the room, it's a short list. For some of us, it's a very long list. And that list is probably growing one, one direction or another. I have found that for most people, the older they get, the list gets a little bit what? It gets a little bit shorter. It does. And the younger I was, the longer it was. But it's still a question worth wrestling with. And occasionally something on this list gets moved off of it. And we say, well, I'm not sure about this one anymore. And occasionally something that we weren't too sure about, gets moved on to this list of certainty, and we need to know what those things are. And so we wrestled with this, and I hope you have too as well. So a question that I want you to wrestle with today in light of kind of this passage that we'll look at briefly and some thoughts that I want you to walk away with is a little different than the two questions so far. It's this question. What is a belief about faith that you have that seems to be true? It seems to be true. What is it? And you say, well, what do you mean? And I would say, well, it's a belief about faith that you have. And you think, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about this, but it seems to me that this might be true. What is one of those beliefs? And you might be tempted to take your beliefs and put them in one of two categories. I'm sure this isn't true. I'm certain this is. But this little middle category is a very, very important one. And I wonder if you have anything in your heart, your mind, your faith set of your beliefs that you would say, this, this seems to be true. It's a maybe. It's a probably. If I was a betting man, I don't know, I'd probably wrestle with it. And it seems like an odd question, doesn't it? It feels a little uncomfortable to us. And the reason it feels uncomfortable to us is because we, we were taught, if you were raised in faith or raised in a church environment, we were taught this idea that... that you need to be, whatever you believe, you need to be sure of it. And you need to know. In fact, Peter even writes, know the reason why you believe. And we would think, you know, that's what I need to do. Anything else feels wishy-washy. This feels a little squishy. This feels like, 
you know, if I get called on the carpet, I'm going to totally say, I don't know, it doesn't even matter to me. And this doesn't feel Christian to us in any way at all. Most of us don't even have a category for things like this. We don't. And we don't know what to do with a question like that. Because if it's important, and let's be honest, what's more important, right? Gregory Boyle just let us know. This is so important, then why would we have a whole list or maybe even one thing? Let's get to the bottom of it, figure it out, and put it in one bucket or the other. Certainty is what we prize and value when it comes to faith issues. But imagine with me, just use your imagination for a moment. For most of us, it's a stretch, but in regards to this question, what would a shift in faith look like if you had some things that were in the maybe category? What would a relationship with somebody who believes differently than you do look or feel like if you had a bunch of stuff that was in the maybe category? What would your discussions look like? If you have approached a a, a transition in faith that was fraught with fear and uncertainty, how different would it have been if you had a few things on your list that seemed to be true. It's a question that you ought to hold loosely. It's something that you ought to maybe say, I'm not sure of it, but today I kind of think this. I mean, yesterday I was kind of there, but now I'm kind of here. What we said from the beginning of this series is that if you're going through any sort of shift in faith, that the scriptures give us a template for this. They help us know how to do it. The problem is, is we haven't really taken a close look at those shifts and what happens or even what it means to go through those changes because most of what we want to do is nail down our beliefs, build a garrison and a wall, and challenge somebody to come over it. But that's not what Scripture represents. Scripture rep- represents a faith that changes and shifts and grows over time. And thank goodness, because the church you're a part of, in fact, the church you've ever been a part of has been part of those shifts and changes over time. None of us belong to a church or have ever belonged to a church in our lifetime that hasn't gone through those changes and shifts from the very beginning. We have a record of the first one, but historians say that about every 500 years, the church goes through a great rummage sale. It's this period in time when they look around and say, you know what, that's got to go. That is useless. That has got to go. We got to get rid of that. And the last great rummage sale, well, if you remember your history class, was the Reformation. In fact, from the very beginning, John Calvin, Martin Luther were branded heretics by people who controlled the power broker issues of faith. Martin Luther kicked out Brandon, a permanent heretic. And here we sit in Castle Rock, and just around the corner are churches that bear the name, what? Lutheran. Are they all heretics? Look, the shifts and changes that we make in our faith are represented clearly through every scripture that we read 
And one of them we've dug into pretty deeply. We're going to go just a little bit further today. It was a story of the church beginning. It's in Acts 15, and it started like this. When Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived, and they began to teach the believers, the followers of Jesus. So there were Jewish men and women, and they had become followers of Jesus, which wasn't unusual. It didn't seem weird. Jesus was a rabbi, and he had a a set of teachings, and they loved what he taught. They had come to believe that he had been killed, that he had come back from the dead, and that he was, in fact, the Son of God. And so they began to build their life around his teachings. But they were all exclusively Jewish, or they were Gentiles who had completely converted to Judaism. And so they were stuck. What does it mean when a Gentile starts to follow Jesus? What is required? And they began to teach this. Unless you are circumcised, as required by the law of Moses which means, and they also had to obey the rest of the law of Moses, you cannot be, what? You cannot be saved. And so the debate ensues, and you can read it. We talked about some of it last week and the week before. Acts 15, they have the the big debate around what it means to become a follower of Jesus, and do you have to go through the Jewish gate before you do so? Do you have to become Jewish before you can become a follower of Jesus? And they had this debate. People spoke up. Peter spoke. James spoke. Lots of people spoke. And the conclusion, after you read it for yourself, you'll find it. It's in Acts 15, 11. It says this. In fact, let's say it all together. It's very affirming for me. It's affirming for you where we are in our faith. Let's say it. Let's begin. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, this we understand and we know it, but we are thousands of years after the fact. The incredible cataclysmic shift for Peter to utter this statement is impossible to overstate. His understanding of the gospel of Jesus, the understanding of what it means to be in a right and free relationship with God is incomprehensible for a Jewish man. His understanding is that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. And this, of course, is the beginning of the conclusion of this debate. And all of us there in Acts 15, and, and really it's connected to the rest of the New Testament henceforth. So after Peter speaks up, James, the half-brother of Jesus, which is kind of a big deal that James was a part of the church. James, uh, who you know, was a part of the family of Jesus, but you know, a half-brother, if you will, um, you know, I, I could take longer to explain that, but I think you get what I mean. And James became uh, first an unbeliever during the ministry of Jesus, later became a believer and became a pillar in the early church. Absolutely incredible. I mean, honestly, for me to be convinced that my brother was the son of God, he would literally have to come back from the dead, okay? <laughs> I mean, I, you don't know my brothers, but it would take a lot. It would take a lot. So James was convinced that Jesus was the son of God, that he was killed and he rose from the dead. And he became a leader in the early church. And so James, a Jewish heritage, of course, born and raised, the whole deal, he spoke up and he began to say this. And this, this is another, this is, is just like this verse in Acts 15, this next one is one that every church ought to really kind of zero in on and say, this is who we want to be. And this is what James says. And so my judgment is that we should not make it, what? Difficult. 
for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's a beautiful statement for an early church pillar to be making. He's saying there are people who are turning to God and, and we're, we're making it difficult. You remember the requirements and all the things that that would entail for a Gentile person who was outside of the, the, the conversion of Judaism. James speaks up and says, we should not make it difficult. And he says, so, no, you do not have to follow the law of Moses. No, no, you don't have to get circumcised. And, you know, you could feel the collective sigh of relief among the Gentile men, right? Oh, thank the Lord. This is, somebody saw the light. And so this moment is absolutely foundational to who we are as followers of Jesus. And then James says, so the law we're going to set aside, vast majority, 99% of the Torah does not have to be followed, but we are going to ask them to follow a few things. In fact, he goes on to say this. They write a letter. This is included in the letter, and this came from James' very words. In Acts 15, you can read it. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay no greater burden on you, Gentiles, than these few requirements. The letter that's included in this section in Acts 15 is a longer letter that went, was written on papyrus, scratchy paper, handed to church leaders, and they took it back to these Gentiles that were waiting to wonder, you know, should I schedule my surgery, right? And so this is what they say. Hey, we want you to know there were some requirements being laid down on you. That wasn't us. That was somebody else. So we also had a big meeting and we had a big discussion, and this was our conclusion. And then they say, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. The thing that catches my attention when I read Acts 15 is this statement. For it, what? Say it with me. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So when you look at the original language, the word seemed isn't in the original language. And they just really took what would be, if we were transliterating the, the passage, one word wrote good and said, well, we have to add seemed to it. Because these two words represent one Jewish word, one understanding of a, of a Greek word, but a Jewish context of this meaning. And it means this. We are of the opinion. Really, a direct translation would be, we are, in fact, uncertain about this. Um, maybe a very direct translation would be the word uncertainly. And it's a very interesting moment in church history because the leaders of the church are saying, you know, we're not really sure, but this is what we think. It is our opinion. We use this wording because of Acts 15 when we voted on our partnership with Wellspring back in May. We Lots of things to figure out about our partnership, but you know, we recognize as a church that there were people who came before us that helped lay the path for our church, and there are people that are coming after us that are going to steward what we do today for our church body here at Castle Oaks. And so we wanted to hold it loosely. At the same time, we also wanted to say that we think this is what God might be up to. And so we use this wording from Acts 15. It seems good to us and the Holy Spirit to engage in this partnership with Wellspring. 
Not near the depth of theological gravity that Acts 15 has, of course. In Acts 15, the pillars of the church who were charged with trying to figure out what it means to be Gentile and be a follower of Jesus, they say, I mean, we're not sure, but it feels like this. This is what we think is good. And not only that, they said, and we're also going to give you no greater burden then lay down a few requirements for you. In fact, we said last week that they took the 613 commands in the Torah and reduced it to three requirements. Now, I don't know if you read Acts 15 or not, but if you did, it was an enlightening moment for you and maybe a little bit puzzling. Because if you didn't know what Acts 15 said and you were to go through and comb through the 613 commands in the Torah and you were going to say, I wonder what three did they keep? You know, let's, let's pretend we don't have a New Testament for a moment. And let's pretend we're in that church business meeting. I wonder which three we should keep. And we'll start at the beginning and we're going to go through. What would it look like and what would we do? Which three seem to be the most important? I'm guessing you would come up with three that are pretty different than the ones that they came up with. I mean, you might have got one of them, but the other two, I think you would have missed. One out of three, not a good percentage. And so they say this, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols. Nope, miss that one. You must not consume blood or the meat of strangled animals, 0 for 2, and sexual immorality. Well, a good portion of the law is devoted to sexual relationships and sexual ethics, and so I can see how that ended up on the list. And then they say this, if you do this, you will do well, farewell. <laughs> here's the three keep it in line and move forward here's what's absolutely fascinating about all of that I don't know that we would have included those things on the list of important issues from the Torah as being critical or important but they do and you have to ask your question why and not only that but it would just be not very many years later that Paul would write I mean if you want to eat some food offered to idols it's okay with us Essentially, he would say, do it according to your conscience, but it's good food. And so it came from God. And so where it was before, it really doesn't matter. That's my translation, but that's essentially what Paul said. So he took what was in Acts 15 and decided, we're going to knock it down to at least two. How could that be? How could they take the law and boil it down that quickly? This wasn't a month-long process. This happened in their discussion. How can people know? The, the shift, the shift that they made was unbelievable and powerful and paved the way for people to come to Jesus that would have otherwise never understood anything about the gospel. And that story is right in the middle of the book of Acts. In fact, when you look at the whole book of Acts, it is the story. It takes up more words and more pages, all of it. Part two, there's another piece to this we'll get into next week. But it is the story of the early church, what it means to know who God is. And what kind of requirements are we going to place on somebody? So what would the church do on a day like today if somebody wants to come to God? What kind of requirements will we put on them? What kind of beliefs would we require that they hold before they have some 
embracing of God's love for them and their life. What would that list look like? What would you put on it? In fact, if you were going to wrestle with the question, you would be wrestling with this question. What does your theology say about your notion of God? What does it say? Everyone has a theology. This is what steers the ship. This is what helps us decide what we value or what kind of relationships we engage in or what kind of shifts your theology is going to go through in the days to come. We're all seeking God. What does your theology say about your notion of God? And you can reverse that too. What does your notion of God say about your theology? It works both ways. So, does it steer you toward pride? I have the answer. Control, behave like me, think like me. Or does it steer you toward love and mercy and grace? If you're going to make a shift, make it towards an understanding of who Jesus is. When the early church boiled it down to a few laws from the Torah, they didn't set aside all of Scripture they were already following a rabbi. His name was Jesus. And everything he taught, they decided to build their life around. That, didn't, that hadn't changed. Hadn't been written down yet. But they all remembered what he said. And Jesus said, I could sum up the entire law with this statement. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Let me guide you through a prayer. Lord, we pray that we would wrestle with this question. Our notion of God, what is it? Who do we believe you are? And how does our theology get in the way or support it? Or many of us believe things that we need to set aside. And that shift is inviting us toward a better understanding of who you are and how you operate in the world. And Lord, some of those some of those shifts can be filled with fear and uncertainty. And so, Lord, if there are beliefs that we have that create those feelings in us, that to shift away from or shift towards something else leaves us feeling unmoored or unconnected or unsteady without a foundation, then maybe that's an indication, Lord, that we should take a close look Lord, more than anything else, we want to be your ambassadors to a world that is hurting and confused and lost. And we know that whatever our theology is, whatever theology we hold, that it will come into operation when we're in the grocery store or Monday at the office or today at lunch that it shows up in how we treat people and how well we listen to others. It shows up in how we love, how we forgive, and the grace and mercy that we want to extend. So Lord, would you go to work on our notion about who you are and 
how you operate in this world. Help us to seek you. Help us to build our life on this foundation of who your son is, what he said, how he said to love. And so if a relationship comes to mind right now, Lord, help us to repair it. Help us to offer grace and mercy. If we find ourselves with values that are askew, we can be assured it comes from our theology. Help us to trust you more. Help us to seek you in humility, recognizing that it is the love of Jesus that restored us into a relationship with you. He indeed paid it all. So walk with us today. Help us to seek you with all of our hearts.